Wow, I just, uh, if you have not discovered uh, Sovereign Grace music, I would encourage you to spend some time getting to know what I consider to be the most rich, lyrically rich and beautiful um, modern hymns being written today. And there's a whole group of folks, not necessarily a part of Sovereign Grace Ministries, but in that circle of friends whose reverence for God and love of the church has produced some of the most beautiful music of our age. Um, Generally speaking, uh, just a a reverence for old hymns and making them new, um, along with some other songs that, that we do here that you'd be familiar with, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm just, uh, before we do anything else, um, I just feel like we need to turn our eyes upward right now. Father, as we, as we have spent this time together already singing, hearing about the missions being carried out in various places here domestically and abroad, as your people seek to carry the light to those in darkness. Uh, Lord, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the beauty of Christ. By the glory that you have revealed to us in your Son. Father, I'm also overwhelmed by the glory that you have revealed through your word I pray today that as we, as we gather, as we come together for this time of hearing your word proclaimed, and as we share later in the remembrance celebration, that you would purify us in this moment, that you would just burn away anything that comes between us, Lord. Make us painfully, grievously aware of our sin. Let it be heavy upon us that we might not be your enemies, but rather your friends, your children. Father, I know that it is inevitable that even now, whether in this in this physical place or connecting online that there are those hearing these words who are not in a life-giving saving relationship with you through your son Jesus Christ and I pray Lord that by your spirit that you would draw them that you would quicken them that you would give them soft responsive hearts and take out the heart of stone and Father I pray that same thing for us who already are in that relationship and have been saved by your sovereign grace. That you would not allow our hearts to calcify. That you would daily, regularly break us. That we might never be comfortable in this world. 
but that we might always remember that you are God and we are not. And we are here to be your ambassadors. And this is not our home. Protect us from the deadly comfort that comes so naturally to us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 14 again today as we continue in this uh, little excursion where we are, we're spending uh, not quite the full amount of time that they spent in the wilderness, but we're spending quite a bit of time here in this particular story to, to look a little more deeply at some of the issues that we could overlook as we're seeing the big picture. Now, the main idea here that we see in chapters 13 and 14 is that when, when they come and they uh, encounter this, their faithless hearts trust their feelings more than they trust their father, and so they reject God's promises. They reject all of the good blessings that, they, that he has for them because it's hard. And we need to recognize through this story and throughout the entire book of Numbers that our faithless choices have consequences. But God remember, remains ever faithful to His covenant promises. Now, today, as we look at Numbers 14, I hope I've given you enough time to look it up. And as I have you look it up, I'm going to have you now turn away from there. Keep it marked because we're coming back. But I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. Because I want you to see this psalm, and because I did not write it down in an appropriate place in my notes, I want to make sure that I don't forget it because I'm prone to do that. Psalm 14 is a psalm of David, but I think it really sets the stage for what we're going to be seeing in this portion of the story in Numbers 14. And I hope that it, um, that it becomes obvious to you why as we go along. If you keep in mind the, the psalm that Jeff read earlier from Psalm 9, and the song that we sang, you may remember it from chapter 10 as Moses' prayer as the Israelites uh, departed and headed toward battle and as they would, would go into each of their battles as they would go along, Moses would pray, may God arise and his enemies be scattered. Those who oppose God will be scattered by God. Not by us, but by God. May we not number among them. Psalm 14, starting with verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. There's no one who does good. Not even one. 
Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on the Lord? There they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Okay, now with that ringing in our minds, before we read in Numbers, let me just set the stage. God has brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and He did so with mighty demonstrations of his power and his presence. He spent a year revealing his heart and character and his expectations to them in the law. He's now led them to the promised land, a rich, abundant land that he's promised and prepared for them. But when they scouted it out, they were afraid of the people who inhabited the land and trusted their feelings over the Lord. Um, As we read this, going to ask you if you're able to do as we did earlier when Jeff was reading the psalm and have you stand out of a symbolic reverence for God's word. Numbers 14, start with verse 1. That night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So as we are encountering this story, we see a a regular theme among God's people. God keeps doing wonderful things for them. They keep complaining, choosing to trust their own feelings, their own wisdom over God. May it not be so. 
This is an interesting story to me. Maybe it is to you as well. Just the way it plays out. There's the part that we know, and then there's the stuff that we don't know. We're familiar with the story. So we know that they go, they send the spies in, right? And they come back, and ten were bad, and two were good. And so Joshua and Caleb get to go in, and everybody else doesn't. You know, they die in the wilderness. We get all that. Yeah, it's old hat. Don't ever let the Bible become old hat, by the way. But that's familiar. The parts that we often forget about are things like, when this happened, Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. And the people actually wanted to stone them, to kill them. Because they were encouraging them not to rebel against the Lord. They're giving encouragement. Hey, if the Lord is with us, and he is, we can't lose. This is going to be great. Um, Kill him. I'm sorry, you've thrown off my groove. Let's shift gears for a second. How do you feel when you've been comfortably sleeping in a nice warm bed in a nice dark room and someone flips on the lights and throws open the curtains. I don't think anybody really likes that. It's, uh, in a sense, a lot like what it feels like to encounter the truth of God's Word. In our natural state, we learn to manage the struggles of life through a variety of means. And the enemy of our souls labors to help us. Yes, The enemy of our souls, the devil, works hard to help us find ways to manage the struggles of life without God. As the devil works to help us in this endeavor, he works to keep us, in the words of Pink Floyd, comfortably numb. The devil will be thrilled to keep us in the gutter or in the penthouse or even in the church, as long as he can keep us away from the reality of Christ and his saving saving grace given to us at the cross. Whether we are too miserable for hope, too angry for peace, too prosperous for desperation, or too seemingly good for repentance, our natural, sinful human state is darkness and separation from God. Romans 8, 7 clarifies that our natural state is actually hostility toward God. We don't submit to Him. We're not even able to submit to Him. We don't have it in us. We are hostile toward the true and living God. Even if we've devised some nice version of God that fits into our life and expectations. The Bible makes abundantly clear that this is the natural state for all of us until the Lord gets a hold of our hard, darkened hearts, flips on the lights, and throws open the curtains. Though most of us would never say it, the truth remains that until we love God, we actually despise God in our unbelief. The fact that some who are hearing this message right now are offended by it only bears witness to it. Opposition to God isn't 
out there in those people somewhere. It's the natural state of the human heart. I pray that as we consider the text today, that concept will become clear and that each of us will gladly choose Christ now, turning our eyes toward Him, worshiping Him, falling on His mercy to save us and change us. That leads us to our core reality for today. Those who represent the things of God will be hated by those who do not. Those who represent the things of God will be hated by those who do not. To be right with God, A.W. Tozer said, has often meant to be in trouble with men. That's very much where Caleb and Joshua find themselves in our story. But ultimately, for us here right now, Joshua and Caleb aren't the point. In the story they are, but for us today, we are not on the verge of Canaan. We are not about to fight giants. We are not dealing with the same things, and you can all pronounce each other's names. It's a small thing, but it's a thing. So the question for us is going to be, what does this do for us to see this story of these two faithful scouts who do the real recon with everybody else. They get the same evidence. They know the same things. They've seen the same hand of God moving in the same ways. And yet these two are excited about what God's going to do and the others are so opposed to it that they actually want to kill them just for suggesting that they should trust God. I don't know about you, but that just kind of blows me away to think about it, right? It's, you're, you're, it's not like they're speaking some terrible condemnation. They're warning them, look, what you're doing, it's not a good path, right? There's a hole in that road. You are, you are heading down a path of rebellion against God. Don't do that. Listen, God's got a great plan for you. He's got the, we've already seen it. It's, it's right here, Everything that we've been working towards is right here. All we have to do is go forward. He will take care of it. The enemies look strong. But when God arises, they'll be scattered. They have nothing. We have God. And the response of their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers, their family, their, their national family, that is, is to kill them. Those who represent the things of God will be hated by those who do not. Jesus told some parables to this effect. You don't have to turn to them, but you know, when Jesus talked about the master being away and uh, the tenants are farming his vineyard and they want to take advantage of it, they want to do things their way, so they beat up the servants and toss them out. They don't want to hear anything. Eventually, he sends his son to come and deal with them. And not only do they beat him like they did the servants, they kill him. That's the same picture that we see consistently. Not just in the church age, 
but from the dawn of time. When sin entered the picture, all those who embraced sin, embraced their own way, opposed anything that might suggest that their way needed to change. Cain and Abel, right? Abel brought a sacrifice that God accepted. Cain didn't. I'm mad at him because God accepted his sacrifice and not mine. I'm going to kill my brother. Been that way ever since. The one who hates the master will oppose the servants. Now before we jump into the text, and we will do that, I promise. Let me just plant some thought seeds that we'll want to keep in our head as we go. There's going to be seven things. I'm just going to throw them out there to you. You don't have to write them down. I just want to have them in your head. Persecution of God's people is actually hostility toward God. Jesus said this in John 15, 8. They hate you because they hated me first. Hostility toward God is the natural state of the unregenerate, unrepentant heart. I mentioned Romans 8, 7 already. The heart that is uh, the, the, the mind that is controlled by the flesh, by the sinful nature, doesn't submit to God, can't submit to God, hostile to God. Those who love the darkness hate the light. We see that in our memory verse for today, it's printed for you in your programs there in John 3.20. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Notice also those who hate the light have a tendency to want to snuff out the candle. They want to eliminate the bearer of the light. It happens here. It happened with John the Baptist. It happened with the prophets. It happened with our Lord. And it will happen with all who hold out the light in the darkness. Jesus told us to expect this. Matthew 10.22 and Mark 13.13 both tell us the same thing. You'll be hated by everyone on account of me. Those who endure to the end will be saved. John 16.33, Jesus said, I've told you these things in advance that you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Their hatred and evil plans are never beyond the reach of God's sovereignty. We'll see that unfold as God intervenes in the story today. And the last thought I want to have bouncing around in your brain as we read this. The true believer remains undaunted by the threats of evil regardless of the inevitable feeling of fear. All right, so those are just uh, seeds we want to get planted. As we are working through this, uh, we'll kind of walk through the text and we'll see what happens here. And you'll see some principles that draw out from it. And then we'll be able to connect that for ourselves. First, mark this down. Unbelief breeds discontent with God and others. Unbelief breeds discontent with God and others. Take a look at uh, Numbers 14, verses 1 and 2. Notice in verse 1, they wept over God's plan for them. Just 
just let that sink in for a second, right? For centuries, all these generations, God's been telling them what he was going to do. The promised land, the seed of Abraham uh, was going to, to uh, eventually come as Messiah. But, but all that God had promised Abraham in a land, in a seed, in a legacy, it was all coming true right now for them. The hopes and fears of all the years, if you will, right now, in this moment, coming to a head. Their response is weeping. Not tears of joy. Tears of regret. And not regret over their unfaithfulness or their sin. Regret that they ever followed God in the first place. Maybe you felt that at some point in your life. You know what? This whole Christian life, it's not worth it. Everybody else seems to have it better than I, than I do. Those wicked people seem to be prospering. All I do is sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice. Woe is me. They wept. Notice what happens after their weeping. In verse 2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So their unbelief breeds discontent with God. They're unhappy. They regret following God. And now they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. All Moses and Aaron have done have go to bat for them. Well, Aaron might be a little questionable on going along with them a couple of times on that golden calf deal. But Moses, even though they have been on his last nerve, continually has gone to bat for them when God wants to strike them. When, when they sin against God and God judges them, they come to Moses and Moses prays. Now, with the gift in their hand, instead of unwrapping it, they're angry with Moses and Aaron. If you want to get a clear picture of it, look at what they say. How do they respond? Are they discontent with God? discontent with, with uh, uh, Moses and Aaron? If only we had died in Egypt. So death is better than following God. Or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Um, he didn't do that. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Slavery, oppression, the misery that they had before is better, they think. That brings us to the second point. Unbelief breeds discontent with God and others. Notice also a dirty lens impairs vision. A dirty lens impairs vision. As I'm wearing glasses, I have a tendency sometimes to get fingerprints on them. And then things look really cloudy. I don't see them right. Sometimes I'm trying to read because these are just cheaters that I'm wearing up here. And the, the smudge on my glasses makes the word look different than it ought to. And so I read the wrong word and I seem silly. He can't read? No, it's because I've got dirty lenses. And it impairs my vision. A sinful perspective distorts our perception. Look at that second part of verse 2 that we were just mentioning. They consider misery and death better than following the Lord. 
Now, you and I can look at it and say, well, it's so obvious, right? That you've got all these things. God's kept all of his promises. How can they possibly walk away from this? The same way you and I do. They got dirty lenses. They're not seeing it right. Their, their brain is broke. There's something not right. This is the point where I want to say sin makes us stupid. Not only stupid, but stubborn in our stupidity. They blame the Lord for their perceived misfortune. The beginning of verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? That's not what happened. God brought you to this land to give you this land. And as Caleb tells to them, these people are like bread for us. We're going to swallow them up. You see giants, I just see a big snack. We're going in, not because of our own power. It's not because Caleb is some super brave guy. He is a valiant man of God. Not because he's better than others, but because he sees reality. One God is bigger than all of the armies of Canaan. And so when God says, I'm going to give you this land, bank on it. Simple as that. That's where his faith stands. They don't see that because they're looking through the lens of the flesh. They're not seeing with eyes of faith. They're seeing according to their own understanding. And they've been riding this whole time with everything that God has been doing until it got difficult. And when their feelings didn't match what God said, they chose their feelings instead. They actually preferred their previous slavery, their old life, to God's plans for them. A dirty lens impairs vision. Notice next, godless thinking brings foolish choices. Godless thinking brings foolish choices. As we look at these, these three points together, I hope you see why Psalm 14 is such a picture of what we're talking about. The fool lives like there's no God. I want to suggest to you that that's not just the atheist. There is a, a book put out that I never read, but I read the synopsis and it was enough for me to say, oh yeah, I get it. It's called The Christian Atheist. And the, the idea, the premise is that so many of us claim Christ, we claim to believe, and as we claim to believe these things, our life says exactly the opposite. I trust God until I have to trust God, and then I'm going to trust me instead. My fears overcome me because I trust my perception of reality rather than God's word as he describes reality. I see the problem rather than seeing God's promise. Godless thinking brings foolish choices. Notice in verse 4, they decide to reject God's man and God's plan and return to their old life. Right? That's, that's exactly what they do. They go in. They said to each other, we should choose a leader. They already have a leader. 
the mouthpiece of God. No, not good enough. We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They reject God's man and God's plan and return to their old life. Thoughts and feelings that conflict with reality produce decisions that conflict with wisdom. When we fail to see reality rightly, we fail to make decisions wisely. A dirty lens impairs vision, and that godless thinking brings foolish choices. When we fail to see reality rightly, we fail to make decisions wisely. Sin makes us stubbornly stupid. Or, if you will, sin sucks the sinner into a sinking spiral of stubborn stupidity. Preachers like alliteration sometimes. Turn, if you would, and stay in numbers, but turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Again, we see a picture of the human heart. I want to strongly encourage you as you read these things to drop the whole pointing fingers thing. This isn't about those people over there. It's about the person in the mirror. We need to understand the person over there so that we can help lead them into the light, but we've got to be in the light first. And whether it's Jew or Gentile, slave or free, there's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Starting with verse 16 of Romans 1, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This isn't just talking to Rome. It's not just talking about Jews. It's not just talking about Gentiles. This is the human condition when the natural state, the flesh, governs our thinking. We suppress the truth of God by our wickedness. The wrath of God is being revealed since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Psalm 19, the first six verses are all about how God's glory is displayed in His created order. And then the, the, the next, uh, however many verses are left in Psalm 14, are all describing the fact that God's law, God's word, is perfect and gives a better revelation, a fuller revelation of his heart and his character. But we already know that he's there and that we're accountable. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Dirty lens impairs vision. Godless thinking brings foolish choices. Although they claimed to be wise, verse 22, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desire in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, notice this now, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, they could no longer tell the difference between right and wrong. He gave them over. If you want the darkness, you get the darkness. They could no longer see. The mind was depraved. Sin makes us stupid. I don't believe this passage is speaking of individuals. I think it's speaking of a society. It applies to individuals for sure. But this seems to be the symptoms of a society, of a people, of a church, of a family that loves darkness and hates light. And eventually, the darkness is all you get. Until the mind is depraved and unable to see the truth. Verse 29. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You might be thinking, boy, that sure sounds like our society today. I want to suggest to you that it sounds like you and me. That's who we were apart from the grace of God, reaching in and pulling us out of that. That's what happens when we're left to our own devices. We are a part of the darkness until God gives us his spirit to say, this one is mine so that we see the light of Christ and rather than wanting to snuff it out, say, I've got to have more light. I need to see. I need life. It's all His grace. And by His grace we come to Him. So let's not think that somebody else is the darkness. We were all in that same darkness, and by nature objects of wrath. But by grace, we're saved. Through faith. Not your goodness. Good luck with that. There's no room for boasting. Even the faith is the gift of God. Verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the state of the natural mind. We do our thing. We embrace the darkness. We hate the light. And we do stupid stuff. Because godless thinking brings foolish choices. Next, notice this. The Lord's servant is grieved by sin and concerned for sinners. Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua find themselves weeping as well in verses 5 and 6. But it's not the same weeping. It's not the lament of those who wish they could repent of following God and go back to their old life that just want to do whatever it takes to shut up these people who want to keep talking about God's will and God's plan and God's promise and God's word and don't rebel and don't do this. They just want to shut them up. God's servants fall face down and tear their clothes for two reasons. The sin of the people is a mark against God. It is throwing dirt, throwing tomatoes and manure and filth on God's image before the nations and they are grieved over sin. And the second is because they are concerned for the sinners. They already know, Moses, Aaron, Caleb, Joshua, they've come to the place where they know that God is with them and God is on their side and will carry them in. They're faithful to God. They're not grieving over their own sin in this moment. They're grieving over the sin of the people, what that does to God's reputation and what it's going to mean for them to rebel against God. Please don't rebel against God. Look, this is good. God's given us this good land. Don't rebel against him. He's going to take care of this. Just trust him. They're grieved over sin and concerned for sinners. You don't hear a a mocking or condemning tone. Far too often, those who wear the name of Christ will get caught up in their own flesh and mock. That's not what they do here. They tear their clothes, grieved by sin and concerned for sinners. Caleb and Joshua reminded them of the goodness of what God had prepared for them in verse 7. And they point out in verse 8 that if the Lord is pleased with them, He'll bring them in and He'll give it to them. This is all good if they'll just follow this good advice. They warned the people not to rebel against the Lord and not to fear the adversary, for the Lord was with them, so the enemy had no defense. Caleb and Joshua were acting on their behalf for their good, and they hated them for it. Notice, lovers of darkness see light as an enemy. Lovers of darkness see light as an enemy. Even the light that is there to help if you've ever parented a teenager, you might know when you go to wake them up in the morning and flip on the light and throw open the curtains, they're probably not very happy about it. You're doing it for their good. They need to get out of bed. They need to get to school. They need to get to work. They need to do whatever they got to do. You're doing it because you love them, not just because you're a jerk. Now, if, 
how you do it may determine if you're a jerk. There's a nice way and there's a harsh way. But lovers of darkness see light as an enemy. The group hated their message. And they hated the message enough to stone them, to kill them. But the Lord intervened in verse 10. They were actually going to kill these people who were there doing the very best they could to honor God and to help the people, and they're going to stone them to death. And the only thing that kept them from doing it is the sovereign intervention of God who shows up. And when God shows up, his enemies are scattered. Notice, that's all he has to do here. That's all that happens. It's not like when the fire broke out. It's not like when he gave them the quail. God doesn't have to smite them right now. All he does is show up. And they shut up. Their hearts haven't changed, but they're dumbstruck by the presence of God. The Lord indicted them for their contempt and unbelief in verse 11. And and as he says it, take a look at verse 11. God treats contempt and unbelief really as synonyms here. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all these miraculous signs I've performed among them. Those who don't believe are showing contempt. They're despising, they are hating God. We're too polite to say it that way. We don't like to think about it that way because we think people, you know, they're basically good, right? It's only those who actively say they hate God or say they hate Christ. If you're some, from some foreign religion, not part of our tribe, those are the bad people. Those terrorists, you know, they obviously, they don't, they don't care about God. You can say they hate God, sure. The, the child molester, the, the, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, oh yeah, they're, they're terrible, they hate God. But the picture the Bible gives us over and over again, 39 books of the Old Testament to make it clear, then explained in the New Testament, is that the heart that does not believe stands in direct, hateful, contemptuous opposition to God. Whether we say it with our mouths or we say it with our lives, it's the fool whose heart says there's no God. Lovers of darkness see light as an enemy. Notice the Lord threatens to destroy them in their sin and start over with Moses. We'll talk in another sermon about Moses' prayer, but for us to understand this today, recognize that there is a judgment for those who oppose God. That judgment is coming and it is inevitable. Those who humble themselves and repent find salvation and grace. But those whose hearts are hardened against God will face his wrath. Turn if you would to Romans, I'm sorry, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. You could turn to a lot of places in Romans. We're not going to do that. We're going to turn to John chapter 3. 
There's a very famous verse there toward the end of the chapter that you may be familiar with, verse 16. Everybody knows John 3.16. We're not going to talk about that today. That's bedrock, but we're going to focus in on what comes after that. See, Jesus has been meeting with this Pharisee named Nicodemus, and they're meeting at night so nobody else will see it. Nicodemus hasn't trusted Christ yet. I believe he does by the time of Christ's death and resurrection. But here, Jesus is explaining to him that you can't just be a nice guy and be right with God. He says, you have to be born again. Well, for me to be born again requires dying to myself, which Romans makes clear. But, but he says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. A new life, regenerated. And he goes on to clarify for him in verse 16. We're going to focus on what comes after. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Here's the kicker. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now that's good news, right? Jesus came. In John 1, we read that he is the light. John the Baptist bears testimony, bears witness to the light. Jesus is the light. It's the life of men. Or his life is the light of men. And as, as we see this unfold, this is good news. So good that they crucified him. Joshua and Caleb have good news. And the people hate them for it. The Son of Man did not come. To judge us. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him, in the Son of God, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe, I would underline this in my Bible if I were you, stands condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What did God say about the Israelites? Contempt, unbelief, it's the same thing. If we're not trusting God at His word, taking the provision, the protection, and the promise that He offers, if we are not loving His presence so much that the rest doesn't matter, then we are holding Him in contempt. We are hating God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Ephesians 2 makes very clear that this is our natural state. So when I read this verse, what I see is this is the verdict. Light has come to rich Zyger, but Zyger loved darkness instead of light because his deeds were evil. We are the darkness. And it's only the grace of God 
who loved this dark, fallen, hateful world so much that he sent his son to come as the light to change us, to save us, so that we could be united to him, that he who knew no sin would take our sin, he would become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might no longer be darkness, but light. In verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Lovers of darkness see light as an enemy. By the way, don't miss the fact that the ones who are opposing the things of God and want to kill Caleb and Joshua are not the pagans. They're afraid of the pagans. It's not the pagans that are the threat. It's not those Gentiles who are outside. It's those who wear the name of the Lord. They're supposed to belong to Him, but they're opposed to His word and His will. They know all the same things as Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron, but they're still in darkness. We need to stop buying the notion of good people as if the only ones who live in wicked unbelief are those whose sins stand out and make the headlines. The classy, moral person who has not surrendered to God's will actually hates God without even realizing it because their idea of God is so flawed, so far from His word. It's often the unregenerate churchgoer who is most opposed to the light because they see repentance and mercy as things other people need. I needed them once. I don't need them now because I'm saved and I've got this figured out. R.C. Sproul paraphrased Thomas Aquinas in saying that the reason we think people are seeking after God when they're not is that they're desperately and earnestly seeking for those things that only God can give them. Happiness, meaning, freedom from guilt, peace. All of these benefits that accrue to those who put their faith in Christ. Not seeking Christ. But it looks like seeking Christ because they want a better life, which you can only find on that level in Christ. last point here light remains undaunted by darkness light remains undaunted by darkness notice that God steps in and keeps them from getting stoned but Caleb and Joshua don't flinch they're undaunted even if they stone them if they're not afraid of the giants in the land they're sure not afraid of their brothers with stones to borrow from Peter when the Lord asked him, are you all leaving too? And Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of life. Caleb and Joshua, what else would we do? The only thing we can do is obey God because he's God. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, you and I, if we carry the light, we will be opposed by the darkness. It's going to happen. 
Our brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted unto death. The 20th century, according to all the reports that I've ever seen, had more martyrs for the Christian faith than all previous centuries combined. You and I are not going to escape persecution. We may not face that level yet. But the world of darkness will always try to snuff out the candle to avoid the light. They will work to shut us up, to shut us down, to shut us out. You will be canceled. You will be criticized. You will be labeled. You will be called a bigot. You will be called hateful. Because you try to tell someone, listen, please don't rebel against God. He has wonderful things for you if you'll just embrace him. But you can't serve yourself and him too. Maybe our message would land better if we actually believed it. If we actually walked it out in our own lives. Let's not get caught up in the silliness of this life where our human identities, our divisions and tribes become everything to us. It doesn't matter which side of the tracks you're from. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're from in your political machinations. It doesn't matter what your income or your education or your skin color or your nationality is. What matters is, do you belong to him or not? Not have you said a prayer. Words are cheap. Does he have all of you? Do you love the light? Or do you love the darkness? Those who reflect the reality of Christ will be hated by those who do not yet rejoice in continuing to reflect the reality of Christ. This includes in the church. Those who are outside cannot reflect the reality of Christ. They don't know Him. Those in the church who have not yet learned to rejoice in continuing to reflect that reality will resent those who do. When the reality of Christ is in us, the life-giving light of Christ flows from us, reflecting his light to those around us, both to those who respond in faith and are blessed by it, and also to those who are comfortable in their darkness and therefore despise the damning light for disrupting their comfort. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you, persecuted. Blessed are you when people speak evil against you. Those who are light cannot be shut down by the darkness. Matthew, Mark 13, 13, reflective of Matthew 10, 22. Everyone will hate you on account of me. Those who endure to the end will be saved. 
In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter talks about suffering, and he says, it's not as if something strange is happening to you. This should be expected. This is the norm. You have something better coming. Paul repeats the refrain over and over in, in each of his letters that the, the suffering we're enduring now, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Jesus said in John 16, take heart. I've overcome the world. In Revelation 2.10, in one of the letters to the churches, Jesus at that time says, don't be afraid of what they're going to do to you. They're going to take you, put you in prison, put some of you to death. Hold on. And I'll give you a crown of life. There's a reality. It's the reality of Christ. It's bigger than what we face in our moments. The light is undaunted. Darkness cannot overcome it. That leaves us with two issues we really have to deal with in parting. First, do I belong to the light or the darkness? Test yourself. Examine yourself. See if you are in the faith. Have I been born again by faith in Christ or am I stuck in darkness? Still too miserable for hope, too angry for peace, too prosperous for desperation, or too good for repentance? My natural state is hardened against God, but He offers a new heart and eternal life to all who will turn to Him. But understand that the narrow door has a low clearance. We can only come to Him flat on our belly in repentant humility. There is no other way to be saved. You cannot come to Christ and hold on to your dignity. No one is good enough. No one is righteous. No one actually seeks God. We may seek His benefits or some form of God we create in our own image, but our natural state is darkness and hates the light. And for many of us, years of church going made it worse, not better as we became comfortably numb. Repent now. Receive Him now. If you recognize that you are not in Christ, don't wait. He's done all the work. He paid the full price. Yours is only to trust Him and receive it. It's as simple as, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. I can't do this. I'm placing all my hope on Jesus. You died for me. I'll live for you. Secondly, if you have dealt with that issue and it's settled in your life, then you need to ask, do I represent the Lord in reality? Caleb and Joshua lived and declared the truth of God and implored the people not to rebel against Him in their disobedience and unbelief. The people wanted to stone them over it. They wanted to stone Caleb and Joshua for saying to trust God and go in. The world hates those who stand for the Lord. Again, our memory verse, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. As you wrestle with this question of 
whether you represent the Lord in reality or merely in words. I give you the, the words of Jesus in Luke 6.26. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Woe to you when all speak well of you. If they hate him, why don't they hate you? Is it because you're not representing him well? You look more like the world than you do like Jesus? I know that's been my problem way too many times. When people were comfortable with me. Now don't get me wrong, it's not Christ-like to be a jerk. If people hate you because you're a jerk, that's not Christ, that's just you being a jerk. But if they're too comfortable, while they're in darkness, you might want to check how bright the light is that you're reflecting. As we now prepare our hearts to go through this ancient ceremony of the remembrance celebration, I'm going to invite the band to come up, and they're, they're going to uh, lead us in a song before they do, I want to just have you contemplate the words of it. We sang that beautiful rendition of Turn Your Eyes from Sovereign Grace and reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. I want to take you someplace a little older to the words of Charles Wesley who wrote, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free so infinite is grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He closes his poem that we sing with this verse, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. This is the most glorious good news in the history of the cosmos. And those in darkness, by nature, hate it. Only God changes it. If you have loved ones that don't know Christ, be the light for them. But understand, they don't, hate you they hate Christ they don't know they hate Christ in all likelihood so pray 
share the light, but pray that their eyes would be opened. And if you are in that state, pray now that God would open your eyes and allow you to see and repent, to turn from your way to His. And if you have, then never forget the price that was paid for your freedom, for your forgiveness. We who chased him to the cross are the benefit. We are the <laughs> we are the recipients of his grace because of that cross. Let's pray, Father. How can we possibly have an interest in? the blood that was shed for us, how could we possibly have our Savior bleed because of our sin? Oh, Lord. Our imprisoned spirits lay for so long fast bound in sin and nature's night. But you, Lord, you woke us up. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray and the dungeon flamed with light by your grace, Lord. For every believer, it's your grace that made our chains fall off, that set our heart free, that we might rise and go forth and follow thee. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son. Now cause us, Father, to walk in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.